I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 18th, 2012. Coming up, we'll hear from the Colorado State Climatologist. Yes, we have our very own, and his name is Nolan Duskin, about a cool citizen science project of his and the future of the Colorado River. And Mark Williams, a professor of geography at CU Boulder, will discuss the impact of oil and gas development on the availability of the quality of water. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A few weeks ago, we reported how the Hubble and Spitzer space telescopes were used to find the most distant galaxy ever observed, a galaxy that was formed only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, when the universe was only 3% of its present age. Then last week, NASA announced the discovery of seven more of these primitive galaxies, all found in the small patch of sky that is called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, by a research team led by Richard Ellis at the California Institute of Technology. Following these successes, the Space Telescope Science Institute just announced that it will go even deeper and farther with a new project called the Frontier Fields Program. The project will use a helpful trick of general relativity called a gravitational lens, where a distant object is made brighter when its light passes by a very massive object, such as a cluster of galaxies. The six fields that will be observed were selected to be around these kind of massive galactic clusters to maximize the effect in the number of distant galaxies that will be discovered. The program will use over 800 orbits of the Hubble Space Telescope, giving more exposure time to go fainter and farther than any previous observations. All data for this observing program will be non-proprietary and available from the Mikulski Archive for Space Telescopes, typically within 24 hours of observation. So all the professional, amateur, and armchair cosmologists can get access to the data and peer into the depths of space and time. It may sound like an oxymoron, but Arctic hurricanes do happen. Like other hurricanes, they have a central eye extreme low barometric pressure, and towering 30-foot waves that can sink small ships and coat metal platforms with thick ice. Now, some climate scientists report the first conclusive evidence that Arctic hurricanes, also known as polar lows, play a significant role in driving ocean water circulation and climate. The results point to potentially cooler conditions in Europe and North America in the 21st century than other models predict. According to the researchers, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom, thousands of these Arctic hurricanes occur over the Arctic region of the North Atlantic Ocean every year, but none are simulated by even the most sophisticated climate models. To understand the importance of these storms on climate, Alan Condren at UMass Amherst and Ian Renfrew at East Anglia turned to a new high-resolution climate model to simulate the high wind speeds associated with these missing storms. They found that by removing heat from the ocean, polar lows influence the sinking of the very dense cold water in the North Atlantic that drives the large-scale ocean circulation, or conveyor belt, that is known as the thermohaline circulation. It transports heat to Europe and North America. Other researchers have suggested that the number of polar lows might decrease in the next 20 to 50 years. 
And if that's true, according to Condren and Renfrew, we could expect to see an accompanying weakening of the thermohaline circulation that might be able to offset some of the warming predicted for Europe and North America in the near future. The study was published in the current issue of Nature Geoscience. Today is the 86th birthday of the photon. Well, not really the photon itself, that's a little bit older, but the term photon. The name was coined by the American physical chemist G.N. Lewis on December 18th, 20, or 1926, in a letter to the journal Nature. The staff of How on Earth hope this little factoid lights up your day. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. Whether it's because of the recent superstorm Sandy that ravaged the Northeast, or the protracted fire season and persistent drought that still plague Colorado and other western states, you've probably been paying attention to climate and climate change lately. But did you know that Colorado, and for that matter most states, have their own state climatologist, an expert who keeps tabs on the changing climate and its impacts on the state, among other things? In our case, this person is Nolan Duskin. He's based out of Colorado Climate Center at Colorado State University. Mr. Duskin also heads a nationwide citizen science project. It's called the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. To learn more about that project, as well as a critical new study on the Colorado River Basin, we have Mr. Duskin on the phone from Fort Collins at CSU. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Hi. Well, it looks like we've got a little speck of precipitation coming. Well, Are you going to be like Santa Claus delivering it? <laughs> the mountains have had a nice delivery already, and now we'll see if we can dust the plains. Well, that's good. So first, um, I didn't know until fairly recently, and I wonder if many don't know, that we do have you, our very own state climatologist. So what's your job description? Well, my job is to monitor the climate of Colorado, and our office has been in place for about 40 years, and the federal government took care of it prior to it becoming a state responsibility in the early 70s. So unbeknownst to many, the state climatologists have been li alive and well for many, many years. <laughs> I'm glad you're alive and well. And you've been at it for how many years? I've been in this position for six years, but I was the assistant state climatologist for 29 years before that. Right. And are, is it a CSU-funded job or, or taxpayer state? Uh, it comes... It's, it's taxpayer dollars coming through the university, but a lot of that is uh, from, from state and federal sources. So I wanted to ask you about this um, network, but first, since it's so timely, um, about the Colorado River Basin study that just came out last week by the Bureau of Reclamation. I think Congress had authorized it to take a look at demand and supply in the Colorado River. And I know you weren't directly involved in it, but you seem to oversee so many of the issues related to climate, climate change, drought. Um, it looks pretty grim, or, or does it? Could you give us a sense? Well, it didn't look bad at all if you didn't impose the projections of climate change. What was interesting is if you took current climate, experienced climate, uh, with all of its variability and its extreme droughts that have been dished out over the last several decades, the Colorado River still looked in balance until you add the projection of a warmer 
environment, higher evaporation rates, and then uncertainty of precipitation, but possibly lower precipitation in the in the Colorado River Basin, and you put those factors into play, and all of a sudden the balance doesn't work out so well. And it's largely those factors beyond population growth projections. I know some critics of the report were saying it seemed like they overestimated population growth and thus the demand for water and the need to create you know, new infrastructure for it. But is it not so much in your mind that the population growth issue as much as just climate change itself? And climate change itself is, is a big factor in there. You drive a higher evaporation rate over the entire Colorado River Basin, and all of a sudden there's more water from precipitation going back up into the atmosphere and less available as surface water, and that is a big factor. So what does it look like? I think the report said something like by 2060 we'll have a deficit or, you know, a gap between demand and supply of 3.2 million acre-feet by 2060. Give us a sense of, you know, what's the comparison? What does that, what will that look like? All right. For those of you who have traveled around Colorado and know what Blue Mesa Reservoir looks like, and Blue Mesa is our largest reservoir in the state. It's over just west of Gunnison, and it holds about 800,000 acre-feet of water. And so 3.2 million would be the equivalent to four Blue Mesa reservoirs. And what will that mean in terms of, you know, populations and usage? I don't know how much Denver metro area itself uses. Uh, yeah, you're catching me without having my water statistics <laughs> embedded in my brain. But it's, uh, it's but, a lot, right? So, but, but, I mean, is this, is this a really critical yawning uh, gap here? It's it's an, enough to be very concerned about. A, a family will will consume. A couple families may consume a, an acre foot of water in a year if they're if they're not too watering too big of a yard or something like that. So it gives you a a sense of of where that water can go. So what's to be done? I know some of the more extreme proposals that luckily Ken Salazar, the Interior Secretary, sort of nixed during the discussion of this was to, uh, with some big huge barge or something, to ship ice blocks from the Arctic to Southern California. I think that's been nixed and ship water from far and wide. But what's your sense of, um, you know, really what, what should be done? Well, there will only be so much water, and no matter how big our reservoirs, and it's amazing the size of of Lake Mead and Lake Powell, and what that has allowed in terms of water development for the lower basin. Uh, but if there will only be so much water, we will only be able to use so much water. So we'll have to achieve an equilibrium. Again, those reservoirs are so large that they smooth out the huge year-to-year variations that we experience, such as the huge runoff we had from northern Colorado in 2011, followed by the incredible drought of 2012. Uh, those reservoirs can smooth out variations over the course of decades, but they can't smooth them out indefinitely. So one has to achieve a, an equilibrium of supply and demand. 
Well, we want to revisit that topic. There's there's so much more, but I also want to get to your uh, network, which you started in 1998. It's called the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. And I believe it was started after a huge flood in Fort Collins, right? Yeah, folks that were around the northern Colorado area in 1997 recall we had a devastating but very localized flash flood in the summer of 97 and with over 10 inches of rain falling in just a few hours over part of Fort Collins. We ended up with fatalities in town, uh, $200 million worth of damage with much of that on the campus of Colorado State University. And we did the post-storm survey trying to find out how much rain fell. And we had about one or two official rain gauges. It was all there was to work with. And as we talked with community members looking for any sort of receptacle they might have had outside, a paint bucket, a a five-gallon pail, whatever they had, people said, well, wow, we would love to help uh, in case we have storms like this in the future. And by 98, we started deploying a small network of rain gauges in the hands of volunteers in Fort Collins. And a couple of years later, we had a rebellion among the ranks and says, we don't want to just measure rain. We want to measure snow, too. And so by 19, well, by about 2000, we had a northern Colorado rain, hail, and snow network going. And then it's just sort of cascaded ever since, has found its way across the entire country, uh, Manitoba, has volunteers, and Saskatchewan's about ready to join. And uh, it's a great way that anybody with a mild interest in the weather, equipped with the appropriate rain gauge and with access to the Internet so they can type their number in each morning, uh, can contribute to a, a nationwide map of rainfall. Oh, so they, so they give you a daily check from their they, backyard bucket? Absolutely. Every day a check and every day a report and suddenly a map appears. I'm looking at today's map even as we speak showing quite a few inches of snow in northern Colorado mountains and the Utah mountains and quite a bit of rain in the from the Ohio River Valley right up to southern Maine and all with the power of backyard volunteers. Well, so on that note, since we've got to wrap it up, where can listeners go to find out more about it if they want to become a... Backyard Bucket Brigade <laughs> Volunteer. Coco Raz, C-O-C-O-R-A-H-S, Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, Snow Network, cocoraz.org, and just click the Join Coco Raz button or just survey the website and get a sense of what we're doing and, and how it works. And, and within a short few seconds, you'll have a sense of how you could contribute from your own backyard. Great. Well, thank you so much. That was Nolan Duskin, the Colorado climatologist. And to learn more about the new Colorado River Basin study and its implications for the state and region, tune in to KGNU tomorrow morning at 8.35. KGNU's Joel Edelstein will host a special show on the Colorado River's future, including reflections on decisions made last week in Las Vegas and at the Colorado River Water Users Conference. Joel's guest will be Ted Kowalski, Colorado Water Conservation Board Section Chief, who served on the Basin Study Project team, and Gary Walkner, director of Save the Colorado River Campaign.
You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Water is such an essential, perhaps the essential resource for life that is considered a key ingredient for life anywhere in the universe. And NASA spends billions of dollars to follow the water in the search for life on other planets like Mars. Considering the importance and value of this resource, it isn't surprising that it has become a battleground here at home on Earth, especially in the western states like Colorado that are dealing with drought conditions and higher demand for clean water to support an ever-increasing population. But the demand for other resources, such as oil and gas, also has a significant impact on the availability and quality of our water. To talk about this issue, we have in the studio Dr. Mark Williams, Professor of Geography at the University of Colorado. He is a fellow at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research and on the faculty of the Hydrology Program. He's a fellow of the American Geophysical Union and a Fulbright Scholar, and is also a co-investigator on the University of Colorado project that recently was awarded $12 million from the National Science Foundation to study natural gas development and its impacts on ecosystems and communities. Welcome to How on Earth, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, let's start off with everyone on the same page here. Can you give us kind of an aquifer 101, what they are and why they're important? Uh, An aquifer is a uh, rock formation below the surface that holds significant amounts of water. And from what we as scientists can't really determine is what does significant mean? It's an economic term. It's not a scientific term. So the, these aquifers are sources for our drinking water just as well as the reservoirs above. Uh, so we want to keep them in pretty good shape if uh, we want to be drinking them down the road, I assume. Um, but resource extraction can affect the aquifers, such as for oil and gas. What are the impacts of those? And, and let me uh, add a couple of others so we don't just focus on oil and gas. Uh, one of the bigger impacts right now and potentially in the future is in-situ mining of uranium. And what's particularly of concern with uranium mining is that a lot of that is occurring closer to the surface. So closer to the surface means that it has more uh, potential for polluting the aquifer. Exactly. uh, More potential to pollute aquifers uh, in terms of water that we would use today. And so is it the actual extraction or is it the residue from these activities that impacts the aquifers? It's a whole variety of things. So with uh, in-situ uranium mining, you're putting in um, uh, things, bad water quality, to essentially dissolve the rock to free up the uranium. And the chances of being able to use that in the future are actually quite low. In terms of um, oil and gas, one of the things that we have a problem with is produced water that comes out of the formations where oil and gas is being extracted, and that could be on the order of 2 million gallons per well. So it's a lot of water. A lot of that water is not very good quality, and so we need to do something with it. And one of the things that uh, is done currently is is deep injection, that is to inject it at depths of seven or 8,000 feet into an existing aquifer, and it goes into an existing aquifer so because that's able to hold that water. So you're injecting these waste products effectively back into an aquifer, So, uh, and you may want to use the water from that aquifer at a later date for, for drinking, and uh, how do you keep uh, one from mm-hmm. affecting the other? And that's the open question, and 
you know, you do one or two, and it really doesn't have a big economic impact. It doesn't really impact our future water availability. But as we uh, inject into more and more aquifers, as more and more aquifers uh, have uranium in situ mining occurring, the cumulative impact starts to be large. And as just to follow up on Nolan stuff, all the water in Colorado is already appropriated. If we have increased drought, um, increased population growth, there's going to be less water. And aquifers that are not usable today, that are not significant sources of water, may be in the future and most likely will be. So the EPA uh, monitors and gives permission for this injection of this wastewater or wastes whatever into aquifers. Uh, so they have to determine whether an aquifer that's being used uh, for this dumping is safe, or at least it's something that can't be used. I guess there are waivers that the EPA provides for that. Is that correct? Right. They're, they're called exemptions. And uh, aquifer protection is directly addressed in the Clean Water Acts that President Nixon signed and that George Herbert Walker Bush uh, added to, added additional protections. Uh, but what people have done now is ask for exemptions for a variety of activities that we just uh, mentioned. And one of the problems is there's a lot of exemptions. We actually don't know how many. The EPA has not kept track of those. And so we don't know what the cumulative impact is. But a number of people are concerned now that we may be sacrificing these aquifers that we'll need in the future. The exemptions are probably for aquifers that are already considered dirty or unusable or not recover, don't have recoverable water now. That, and that was the initial uh, criteria for exemptions. Uh, but now pretty much anybody can ask for an exemption. I don't know of any cases where an exemption has actually been denied. So they, they, the EPA gives these out. They review them, I assume, at some level, but there has not been any denial of an exemption. Not that we know of. So fracking being a current hot topic, how does that fold into this, uh, this issue as far as the aquifer quality and, and safety down the road? So um, in terms of fracking, in general, the uh, formations that have oil and gas are actually aquifers. They have a lot of water. And to free up that oil and gas after you frack, you need to remove that water. That's called produced water, and it comes up to the surface. The chance of contamination from the fracking process itself is actually low. It, it's been kind of overblown um, in, a lot, in a variety of ways. The problem is what to do with that produced water. The current solution is deep injection, we know that that can cause earthquakes in certain situations. The real key down the road in terms of fracking is, is to treat that water and to make it cost-effective to treat that water. We know how to do it today, uh, but it's not cost-effective, one. And two, uh, the regulations actually need to be adjusted for that. So so for fracking, basically, your your takeaway is that it's a waste disposal issue rather than the actual extraction issue. That That's the bigger problem. Okay. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but that at least gives us something to think about as we look at the water coming out of our faucets down the road. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, it's my pleasure. We were talking with... That's all for this edition 
of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Jim Pullen was also our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Pat Metheny and Dave Matthews. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.